Welcome to our podcast, Neurology Morning Commute, COVID-19 Vaccines and the Multiple Sclerosis Patient. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi Genzyme. In this podcast, Dr. Benjamin Greenberg and Dr. David Greenberg will discuss COVID-19 vaccines in the context of multiple sclerosis, their safety, how are they affected by disease-modifying drugs, and the importance of the vaccines for this patient population. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Benjamin Greenberg is a professor of neurology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And Dr. David Greenberg is a professor of internal medicine also at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And yes, they are brothers. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Benjamin Greenberg will begin our discussion. Welcome to our podcast, COVID-19 and the Patient with Multiple Sclerosis. I'm happy to be joined today by Dr. David Greenberg, an infectious disease specialist who just also happens to be my older brother. And we are hoping today to both educate you about COVID-19 and the issues that relate to multiple sclerosis and its practice, and I'm hoping to prove to any trainees in the world why it's better to be a neurologist than an infectious disease physician in modern American medicine. But let's start by giving a general background about the issues where multiple sclerosis, COVID, and COVID vaccinations intersect. This is a huge topic of conversation in my practice. I discuss it literally on a daily basis with patients. And there are lots of questions that come up. The most common question is whether or not COVID-19 represents a unique risk to multiple sclerosis patients. We hear about patients with comorbid conditions who get infected with COVID-19 having a worse outcome over time. And the question is, is multiple sclerosis independently a comorbid condition? And what the data suggests so far is the answer is no, that unless you are significantly disabled from your multiple sclerosis, the mere fact that you have a diagnosis of MS does not increase your risk of a bad outcome if you're infected with COVID-19. The second most common question we get in our practice is about whether or not the COVID-19 infection could trigger a relapse of a person's multiple sclerosis. And indeed, the answer to this so far seems to be no as well. We've had patients, unfortunately, who've been infected, but we haven't seen those infections independently cause an increased risk of MS relapses. These were the questions that were filling our minds and our clinics for over a year of the pandemic. And then thankfully, we had the release of the COVID-19 vaccines. And one of the biggest questions we get on a regular basis is, do we recommend the vaccine for our patients? And is it safe for a multiple sclerosis patient to receive the vaccine? Obviously, when talking about COVID-19 vaccines, we have to recognize that there are multiple different versions on the market. In the United States, there's three different vaccines that are available for use, the Pfizer, Moderna, and then the J&J vaccine. And what we have so far is more data for the so-called mRNA vaccines made by Pfizer and Moderna. 
in our experience, we have found that the safety data that has been shown in the general population applies to our MS patients as well. We've had thousands, indeed hundreds of thousands of MS patients who've undergone vaccination, and we have not seen a unique risk profile to the vaccines among our MS patients. But even with this reassuring data, we get the questions on a regular basis. Would a vaccine trigger a relapse? Would a vaccine cause a worsening of disease? And it's extremely important to educate our patients about what to expect with vaccination. One of the things I talk to patients about is the difference between a relapse and a pseudo-exacerbation. We have to remind our patients that it is possible for them to experience a transient worsening of prior symptoms, symptoms they had in the past after any vaccination. It's very common for people to get a low-grade fever when they get a vaccine administered. And in the setting of low-grade fevers, our MS patients can re-experience old symptoms. So for example, if you have a patient who had lost vision in their left eye and recovered quite nicely over the years, in the days after a vaccination, any vaccination, if they were to get a low-grade fever, that blurred vision in the left eye might come back with rest, with techniques to cool their body temperature, maybe with a little acetaminophen, the symptoms tend to go away. But this transient worsening of symptoms is often misinterpreted by our MS patients and by some clinicians as being a relapse, when indeed it does not represent new inflammation and merely represents an exacerbation of old symptoms, but no new damage is occurring. So that overarching question on whether or not vaccines are safe for MS patients can confidently be answered with a yes when talking to patients in the clinic. And indeed, we encourage our patients to get the vaccine. Now, in our world of 2021, we are faced with huge amounts of misinformation. There are countless stories of patients coming into clinic with tons of pages printed from the internet about all sorts of theories and uh, misunderstandings about the vaccines. And, and one of the reasons we see so much theories, conspiracy theories, and misinformation spread around the internet is because the vaccines being predominantly used, specifically the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, are different in technology than anything we've done before. Now, while I tease my brother, the infectious disease physician, for his uh, clear poor choice in terms of career, um, it's great to have him join us today and educate us about not just the goals of vaccines in general, why do we do them, why do we use them, and how do they work, but to get his thoughts on the true paradigm shift that has occurred with this new technology of mRNA vaccines. And David, my one regret is that we didn't think of this ourselves and go into business to produce mRNA vaccines because this, this to me at least, the, the country bumpkin neurologist seems like a just sea shift in our ability to approach vaccine development. Well, thank you, young Dr. Greenberg. Thank you for letting me talk about mRNA vaccines. Now, I know you're a bright guy, but I'm going to ask you a little trivia question first. Prior to COVID, what was the fastest vaccine to be developed for an infectious disease? I'm going to say the fastest vaccine to be developed for an infectious disease was for smallpox. I think it took them a day. Wow. This is why um, infectious disease physicians actually have to undergo advanced training compared to neurology. 
uh, I will educate you a little bit. It turns out that from viral sampling to approval, the fastest vaccine in history prior to COVID was for mumps in the 1960s. And for the mumps vaccine, it took them a whopping four years from viral sampling to approval of the vaccine, which at the time was um, lightning speed. What's remarkable and what has been extraordinarily amazing in the face of a devastating worldwide pandemic has been the development of the COVID-19 vaccine. And in fact, it happened in under a year. And it happened in under a year for a number of important reasons that the listeners should be aware of. Literally from the time that they sequenced the virus to getting approval was nine to 10 months for the first vaccine. There were a number of things that happened in the development of these vaccines that allowed for such a rapid pace. One was with enough resources and a very large investment in funds, the companies that made mRNA vaccines were allowed to do a number of unique things that normally would have taken years. They were able to start clinical trials while simultaneously making the final product. Normally you would go through all clinical trials, you would show that they were safe, and they were efficacious. And then once you were approved, you would start making lots of vaccine. So that didn't happen here. They were allowed to do both simultaneously, taking their chances that at the end of the day, if these vaccines had not been shown to be safe and effective, millions of doses would have been thrown in the trash. But just to be clear, because one of the questions I get and one of the pieces of misinformation out there is the notion that corners were cut in the development. And what you're saying is, that the companies took risk by doing things in parallel that would have normally happened in series, but they were held to the same manufacturing standards and the same study standards. That's exactly right. So there weren't corners that were cut, they were working in parallel. But there were other features that allowed this to happen so quickly. Much of the groundbreaking basic research that went into mRNA vaccines actually had been going on for decades prior to the emergence of SARS-CoV-2. So figuring out how to make these mRNA particles, how to encapsulate these particles in these lipid formulations um, were critical into making an effective vaccine. And so groundbreaking work had been going on for years that led up to the moment that we faced with COVID-19. So how do these vaccines work? Um, just at a very high level to uh, go back to basic biology for the audience uh, in our body, DNA, the, which codes the genes, um, are converted into RNA, and that is converted into proteins. The way these mRNA vaccines work is we skip the DNA step. So we literally took the virus, key structures of the virus that were known to be important for causing human disease, such as the spike protein, which these mRNA vaccines are designed to make and basically encapsulated the mRNA for this spike protein in these lipid particles that allowed for uptake, very efficient uptake into human cells. And these cells produced spike protein. And we then made antibodies and had an immune response to the spike protein. And the spike protein is the critical determinant that is important for attachment to human cells. So these mRNA vaccines proved highly effective and highly safe. And the two different versions that you already mentioned 
um, both showed remarkable efficacy in preventing death and severe disease from COVID-19. So when I think about the vaccine strategies in the past, and, and I like the example of the mumps vaccine, I hate to say I learned something today from you, but I did. The vaccinations in the past used either live attenuated viruses, killed viruses, or protein subconjugates of an infectious agent, bacteria or a virus, with the idea being that the whole virus, live or killed, or the protein, would be presented to a person's immune system to prime the immune system so that if you then ultimately saw the real infection, your immune system would be ready to go fight the infection so that you didn't get as sick or even didn't get sick at all. And what you're describing with the mRNA vaccine is instead of going through the trouble of having the whole virus or sorting out how to attenuate the virus or purify proteins from the virus, the mRNAs made use of a natural biology within human cells to present foreign proteins on the surface and trigger an immune response. That's right. And there are vaccines around the world that are still taking that classic approach. Um, the two mRNA vaccines are utilizing this brand new technology to just make the protein of interest that we think is most important for causing disease. I will point out that other vaccines and other technologies take a similar approach. For example, the J&J &J vaccine, instead of using mRNA, is using DNA itself. And they're giving DNA that codes for the spike protein. So it's the same idea. Um, we're giving a piece of the virus to make the mRNA to make the protein. So the mRNA vaccines sort of skip that step. Um, but they're both similar. They both are using pieces of the virus at a genetic level to produce protein that we make an antibody response to. So one of the things I... I say in my clinic to patients, and I, I'm curious for you to give me advice, uh, however painful it is to say that to, to an older brother, um, on whether or not I'm being accurate. One of the things I reassure my, my patients about is one of the beautiful things about using mRNA technology in this setting is mRNA degrades very quickly. And in fact, our supply chain needed these huge freezers in order to keep the vaccines very, very cold so they wouldn't degrade. But once administered, I look my patients in the eye and I tell them the mRNA is going to disappear from your cells. You're going to get a transient expression of the protein, but you're not going to retain the substance in your body for years to come. And a lot of patients and myself find that comforting, that we're not injecting a protein that might circulate for a long period of time. Am I accurate in the way I'm representing this? You are accurate mRNA breaks down very rapidly. In fact, one of the technologic innovations that led us to the moment we're in now was trying to figure out how do you take this very sensitive molecule that's broken down very easily, mRNA, and how do you protect it long enough to get it to cells to produce the protein? So those were some of the fundamental advances that led us to where we are today. And it was encapsulating, protecting these mRNAs and these lipid particles to give it enough time to get into human cells, to make the protein, to get the antibody response. So actually what you say is so true. In fact, um, that feature um, was a flaw up until we made these recent advances um, to protect this very uh, fragile molecule um, and get it into humans and into human cells long enough to get an immune response. So you're absolutely right, although that pains me to say.
So um, our audience has definitely heard enough from infectious disease physicians. I'm going to take back over ownership of the microphone and bring some semblance of uh, authority to the world of neurology and talk specifically about multiple sclerosis and, and what you've educated us on relative to vaccine efficacy. So there's, there are two things that are needed in order for the vaccine to work. You need the protein to be expressed, that foreign spike protein to be uh, put onto the surface of cells for an intact immune system to see it. Now, our multiple sclerosis patients have intact immune systems. In fact, a part of their immune system is overactive, is the problem in the disease. But one of the issues that comes up has to do with the therapies we use to modulate the disease. We prescribe disease-modifying therapies to our patients, and they can fall into three different categories relative to their impact on vaccine efficacy. Because if we have a disease-modifying therapy that suppresses the immune system to a significant degree, there may not be an immune cell there to respond to that spike protein that's being expressed in the cell. So the drugs that we use can be classified in the following way. First, the drugs that probably do not impact the efficacy of the vaccine include our immunomodulatory drugs. These are the platform agents we've used for over 20 years, the injectable therapies such as glutirum or acetate and the interferons probably do not have an impact on efficacy. But I wanna compare that to a group of drugs that we now know can impact the efficacy of the vaccine. And those are our B cell depleting therapies, ocrelizumab, ofatumumab, both FDA approved for multiple sclerosis have been shown to limit the ability of a patient to mount an antibody response to the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, what's fascinating in some of the research is despite the lack of antibodies developing because the patients lacked B cells, they were able to mount a T cell response to the vaccine. What we do not know yet is whether or not that will be enough to clinically protect patients from severe COVID-19 infections. What we have started to do is to work with our colleagues in different fields rheumatology, oncology, to look across the spectrum of immunosuppressive therapies that we use to quantify the impact of these immunosuppressive therapies on a person's ability to mount a response to the COVID-19 vaccine. And there are some medications for which the jury is out. And it's important for our audience to recognize that some medications, such as the S1P modulating therapies, and there are several on the market. They include fingolimod, sipanimod, ozonimod, and ponisimod, all FDA approved for multiple sclerosis. We do not yet have enough data to determine if they will significantly lessen the efficacy of a COVID-19 vaccine. So this brings up a whole host of very practical questions for our patients and our practitioners in the audience around starting new therapies, delaying infusions of therapies, spacing out dosing of therapies? Should we be creating windows of patients having an intact immune system and vaccinating during that window and then starting back on the therapy? And while there are some guidelines that are out there, none have been studied in a prospective fashion on a large scale. And so it really is an individualized conversation that we have with all of our patients around the timing of the COVID-19 vaccine. 
I have to stress though at this point for our audience that when talking to patients, we need to separate out safety and efficacy. Regardless of the medication that a multiple sclerosis patient is on, it is safe to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Neither the diagnosis of MS nor the medication you're on changes the safety profile of the vaccination. What does change is the potential efficacy of the drug, with certain medications having a bigger impact on vaccine efficacy than others. So given your decisions about life, travel, work outside the home, knowing whether or not you mount a response to the vaccine can have a big implication for the decisions our patients make on a regular basis. But it brings me to our last topic, and that is what's become a little bit of a controversial area in different countries around the world, and that's the notion of boosters. So David, as you explained, the idea as we give doses, and I'm, I'm gonna focus on the mRNA vaccine specifically, as we give doses of mRNA to, to me, for example, uh, we inject the mRNA, my cells translate that code into a protein, the spike protein. The cells express the spike protein transiently such that an immune cell coming by can get primed. And with each successive dose, we think the number of patients who get protection and the robustness of that protection increases. So in the original dosing of mRNA vaccines, there were two doses separated by either three or four weeks, depending on which manufacturer and which dose you got, Pfizer or Moderna. But now in the last couple months, we've come to the discussion of giving boosters a third dose to individuals to see if it would help with their response to the vaccine and protection against uh, disease. So Dave, who should get boosters? When should they get them? And why are we hearing different things from different sources? Right. So the idea of boosters and needing a booster shot, there are a number of factors that come into play. The first is the observation that over time, your antibody levels that you made may decrease naturally. And this decrease, it's not fully known at what level, if you get below a certain level of antibodies, has your risk suddenly increased for getting COVID? But there's a second factor that's equally important and influenced what happened with boosters, and that was variants of COVID. Everyone is familiar with variants, meaning what these viruses do and what they're very good at is changing over time and, or mutating. That includes changing certain critical structures like the spike protein. So all these variants that we've read so much about and unfortunately have experienced in our lives, the most recent being the Delta variant that when we thought we were out of the woods, suddenly the Delta variant explodes across the world and the United States, that changes things. And depending on the variant and depending on what mutations exist in the spike protein, those previous antibodies may not work quite as well. So there were a number of things that led to the idea of boosting. I will point out that long-term data still shows that even in the absence of boosting, there's still a lot of protection, certainly significant protection from death or severe illness and hospitalization if you get COVID. But given decreasing antibody levels, and the explosion of Delta, the CDC and others around the world recommended booster shots. Now, 
This is where things get a little tricky. They recommended booster shots, not for everybody, but certain situations. And I anticipate the next time we talk, Ben, about this, things may be further different than they are today. But I will point out, because you probably know this, that if you go to the CDC website, for example, multiple sclerosis is not listed as a condition, a disease that would warrant booster shots. Did you know that? I did know that. Okay, so what are we gonna do about the patients with multiple sclerosis? If you look at the guidelines of who qualifies for booster shots, there are immunosuppressed patients and patients who are on various immunosuppressants regardless of age. So in that context, how would you view the multiple sclerosis patient and how would you think about whether you would boost all of them or some of them depending on the situation? So for us, we've classified patients based on the medication they're on uh, or if they have an independent comorbid condition that puts them in the high-risk category. But if they're on those B-cell depleting therapies in particular or even some in the gray area, we've been recommending booster shots to try and give them the best chance of mounting a response. But you're right, this is something that's ever-changing. The recommendations that we get uh, change as we get smarter about this over time. So I, I don't get upset when they change. I just recognize that we're getting better at what we do. Can I throw out one practical thing? This question comes up all the time, and some listeners may be wondering, if I got the Johnson & Johnson, or I got the Pfizer, or I got the Moderna, what should I get boosted with? And I'll just mention that... Um, the CDC has helped us out a lot in this situation, and now the guidance is you choose, meaning you can mix and match, and the data supports that if you got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which we know probably isn't quite as efficacious as the mRNA vaccines, and you want to get your booster shot with an mRNA vaccine, that is perfectly fine. Well, Dave, I appreciate it. This is where we are now. We know that COVID-19 is ever-changing. And in our next podcast, we're going to discuss more about boosters. We're going to drill down further about disease-modifying therapies in MS in the era of COVID. And I will educate all of our listeners about how you stole my Star Wars figures at the age of eight and still have not given them back. I encourage everybody here not to prescribe like my brother, uh, but to follow the advice of neurologists everywhere. Dave, I'll, I'll give you the last word. I'm not sure why I let you talk me into this, but I will come back. Thank you. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS COVID vaccine. Thank you for joining us today.